Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to... And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hey, we can't make this show without people like you supporting us. For just $5 a month, you could be getting ad-free versions of this podcast. Go to canadalandshow.com slash join to support this journalism. Thank you. When Juliana Ramirez realized she was pregnant in 2016, she'd just broken up with her boyfriend. And he wanted proof that the baby to come was his. So the two went to the largest private hospital in the capital of Costa Rica and gave DNA samples. What Ramirez didn't know is that the samples weren't tested in Costa Rica. The hospital sent the samples to another lab, which then sent the samples to yet another lab in Canada. It was called Health Genetic Center. The results came back and said that her ex-boyfriend wasn't the father. Ramirez was, in her own words, devastated. She knew the results were wrong. But her family doubted her, and her ex refused to support her or the baby. 
Eventually, Ramirez would get two further tests that would prove what she knew all along, that her ex-boyfriend was the father of her baby. This case is just one of several that journalist Peter Aldis has found, in which the results of a prenatal paternity test from HDC, that Canadian lab, turned out to be wrong. Peter first wrote a story about this test for New Scientist magazine all the way back in 2010. And instead of providing evidence that the test wasn't, as the headline of that article read, unreliable, the lab and its director, Dr. Yuri Melikevitz, sued Peter and the magazine and the publisher. The legal battle centered around a question of science. Was it substantially true that this prenatal paternity test was, quote-unquote, unreliable? Or was the article defamatory? The case dragged on for nearly a decade. Peter's reporting was ultimately vindicated, and Health Genetic Center is still selling a prenatal paternity test. You can buy one for about $1,000. I'm senior producer Kasia Mihailovich, And Peter Aldis, now on the science desk at BuzzFeed News, joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode was brought to you by Michael Robertson, Janelle Tugas, Verona Ko, Jeff Schott, Mai Hamid, Kata Law, Josh Ryu, and David Crockett. My name is David Crockett, and I'm an electrical engineer based in Toronto. I support Canada Land because the stories make me uncomfortable. Jesse and the team remove the wholesome veneer on the Canadian media outlets I grew up with and really make me think more about the information I'm consuming or not consuming. Thanks for all you do, and keep making me uncomfortable. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. The story started out with a tip from a scientist about a paternity test company based in Toronto, Canada called Health Genetic Centre. Peter, what about that tip made you want to dive into the story? So the scientist, Denise Syndicum Court, was then at Bart's Hospital in 2009 when I got the tip, yeah, to, uh, when I was with New Scientist magazine. And I was doing a lot of stories around genetic testing, genetic privacy, and so on. And in one of our regular conversations, she mentioned to me that she had two separate pregnant women come to her who had doubts about a prenatal paternity test that they'd had done, and it was done on a sample of their blood. Now, that at that time was very unusual, and usually you would do a test like that with an amniocentesis or something like that. Denise did the tests with an amniocentesis and got a different result in each case than she'd seen from this, well, she just told me it was a company in Canada. And and that was pretty concerning because for those two women, they were both looking at probably aborting the fetus if it was a particular guy's child. And that was what they'd been told by the lab in Canada. Mm. Whereas when Denise did the tests with more established methods, they she got the opposite answer. So and and at that point, that was when I thought, well, look, this is this is serious. Like this has very real consequences. And why were people choosing this test as opposed to the other test? Yeah, so one of the major concerns for historically, and certainly at, in 2010 when we published this story, was at that time only this one lab in Canada was doing a test that could be run on the pregnant woman's blood. You could get a prenatal paternity test, but to do that, you had to undergo an invasive procedure like amniocentesis, which is basically like a big needle being pushed through the stomach into the amniotic fluid. Or there's something else called chorionic villus sampling. But again, it's an invasive procedure. And both of those have a fairly small risk, but a you know, a risk of triggering miscarriage. So, I mean, the appeal of this test was avoiding that risk. Right. Um, and, and now there are a couple of companies in the U.S. and one in China that, are, that actually do operate scientifically validated tests that can be run on maternal blood. But at this time, back in 2010, HGC was the only one that was offering that, that I could find. And... Did they invent this test? Did they explain how they were able to do this when no one else was? Well, yes. The CEO of the company claims the test as, as his invention. This is Yuri Melikovets, mm-hmm. uh, the CEO of HGC, but had not published any, any scientific studies to, to validate the test. Uh, now, the other companies I mentioned, which are now marketing 
uh, a test that can be run on blood. They've all published peer-reviewed scientific studies in the open scientific literature on that, but but HGEC has, has not. And so originally, what was kind of the scope of your 18-month-long investigation before you published your first story? One of the things I did was find more examples of women who'd given been given results from the lab in Canada that was subsequently contradicted. I ended up finding around a dozen of those. I looked for court records. I found a case uh, in Arizona in 2003 where a couple, the guy had suggested he was the father by the lab in Canada, but subsequent testing showed he wasn't. They filed suit in Arizona where they lived. HGC, the company in Canada, didn't show up to contest that. Uh, So there was a default ruling and some considerable damages awarded, but they were, you know, with him being in Canada and them being in Arizona, they were never able to collect on that, but I, I spoke to them. And then we really started digging into the science. So I was looking at the number of genetic markers they were using and the type of genetic markers they were using Mm -hmm. for these tests. And it was pretty clear that they, uh, for the particular genetic marker they were using for their more recent tests, so after 2006, you'd need about 50 of those to give a statistically meaningful result, you know, to be sure your conclusions on paternity are are valid they were only using about 10 to 12 you know it was pretty clear from talking to experts that statistically the the test you know was not going to have the power that it would need to have then we actually started doing some more stuff we submitted our own samples yeah you kind of went undercover Uh, Yeah, we did a little bit of that it wasn't our main approach but the reason we did that is Uh, We knew that this test depended on a a DNA copying method called PCR, or the polymerase chain reaction. Now, PCR is very, if you're not very careful about it, how you run it, it's prone to, well, it can do a number of things, but one of the things it can do is amplify DNA that doesn't actually come from the sample you're interested in, but is just contaminating DNA from the environment in the lab. Mm -hmm. We thought that that could be a problem here. So we actually ended up submitting a sample, which was, well, two alleged fathers. It was me and at that point, the the news editor at New Scientist magazine. And then the woman who had never been pregnant and was not pregnant was my immediate editor who was handling this story. So we submitted her blood you know, there would be no fetal DNA in that right at all because she was not and had never been pregnant. And cheek swabs from me and uh, the news editor, and it came back, generated a profile for this non-existent fetus, and we suggested I was probably the father. So that was suggestive, at least, of at some sort of problems happening of the sort I've talked about with PCR. And then we actually started getting, for some of the customers who'd been given conflicting results, there was a company in the US that had had a number of these cases. And for a couple of them, we 
actually were able to get the original samples from the follow-up tests uh, out of their freezer, transferred over to Denise Indican Court, who I mentioned previously in London, and then her lab re-ran it for the markers that the Canadian lab used. So we were able to see the specific errors they had made right. in, in the profiles they were producing. So you put all of this together and the word that was in the headline of the original story was that this was an unreliable paternity test. Right. And that's drawn on multiple examples of the test giving the wrong answer. And then also a test not even telling you that somebody wasn't pregnant. Like, yeah, you can take that pregnancy test anytime. Like, well, indeed. And we obviously we did run a pregnancy test on our editor to confirm <laughs> wasn't pregnant. And um, we got results back that had a DNA profile that was supposed to be for the, for the fetus, but there was no fetus. Part of your investigation, I'm sure, involved putting these findings to Yuri Milikovets and the company. Yeah. What did he have to say about the reporting that you put to him? We approached him in actually in October 2010, and we published in December. So oh, I can tell you there was a pretty uh, robust legal response. Uh, we were threatened with legal action mm -hmm. uh, before we published. We had an extensive back and forth about the science. We provided a lot of our supporting evidence during that, you know, those several weeks when we were going backwards and forwards. There was no resolution in that. We went ahead and published. And as we had been warned, some weeks later, Melikovets and HGC uh, filed a libel suit. And you personally were named in the lawsuit, right, as well as the publication? Me, the publication, and the publishing company. Do you remember what you thought when you got served? Throughout this, I never had any doubt about the story. Of course, you never know quite what's going to happen when things get into the legal arena. And then it just went on for so long. Right. This rumbled on with varying intensities of activity for quite a long while. And it was only really, I guess, you know, in, in 2017, 2018, it became obvious that this it was going to go all the way, essentially. So, uh, and at that point, then, you know, it's a lot of work preparing for a libel trial, which is going to depend on the intricacies and the details of the science. Right. And how, how do you go about defending yourself and your reporting for a lawsuit like this? By this time, I, I you know, I'm, I'm working for BuzzFeed News by this time. All I can say is I'm very glad that both my former employer and my current employer were fully supportive throughout. So firstly, there was never any question of me being personally liable for the work that I'd done. It ultimately, it's covered by the libel insurer, right? Because that's the way publications deal with issues like this by having insurance in the event that they get sued. So, you know, we 
had excellent lawyers in Canada. They were meticulous in working with me to prepare my affidavit and evidence and affidavits and evidence from a lot of other witnesses, mm. many of whom are you know, leading experts in DNA testing, forensic DNA. If we looked at the evidence we put in beforehand, there were 2,000 pages from our side of written testimony and scientific materials, you know, papers, reports, etc. Right, because I was reading through the ruling and it, it felt kind of like reading a slightly drier version of a, like a follow-up article because it contained so much more stuff that you would have learned through discovery and through the legal process from your team. Yeah. Did anything that that fact-finding process reveal, was any of it a, a kind of surprise or, or something that you were... I, I wouldn't say anything was a, a surprise. And there are elements that I can't talk about sure. because... Uh, of reporting restrictions from the trial, but but I can talk about what's in the ruling. Okay. Now, I wouldn't say this was a surprise, but it was certainly an explanation for some of the stuff we saw. I mentioned this PCR, this DNA copying reaction earlier. Yes. So it, it's you kind of run this reaction multiple times over, and they were running it through many more cycles than the manufacturer recommends, which is like known to be a potential for for causing issues. Some of the stuff that was revealed in the ruling that I was reading seemed like information that you could have only gotten through this process as opposed to reporting because they were compelled to hand over some of this information, right? Uh, yes. One of the things that definitely came up is that during the trial, there was some discussion of the, the validation studies, which HGC said it had performed, and our expert was able to look at that. And as the judge put into his ruling, scientific expert Bruce Badole concluded that these studies would not satisfy any accepted standards for validation testing. That's a, that's a quote from the ruling. Now, obviously, I didn't have access to that material when I wrote the original article, so I couldn't have commented on that then. There is some testimony from Milikevitz himself. How would you characterize his response to these questions brought up about his scientific acumen and his uh, invention? Well, as I put it in the article we just published, I felt that he treated the scientific challenges that came from our witnesses with disdain. I mean, he expressed the view that he didn't need to convince other scientists how good the test was. Did it make a difference that he was headquartered in Canada as opposed to the U.S. where I think you live now? Yeah, and indeed lived at that time. Um, well, yes, the libel laws in Canada are much more favorable to the plaintiff than the defendant than they are in the United States. I mean, uh, I mean, we actually had a number of defenses, but the one that was important to me was justification, which is basically that what I wrote was true or in the legal definition, substantially true. In, in Canada, the, you know, the burden of proofs on me to show that it was, it's a high bar. I'm glad to say it's a bar that we cleared, I think, 
very convincingly if you read the ruling. Yeah, and the ruling is pretty, it, it sides with you very strongly and is quite damning of the lack of scientific process that the test underwent and uh, Melikevit's answers to the, those questions. The ruling was delivered in 2018. How does that work? Did the judge read it out like a like in a courtroom? Were you there? No, I was not. I, att I attended the trial, which was in March and April 2018. But no, it's a published written ruling. Do you remember reading it the first time? And if anything really struck you? Well, uh, relief, certainly. Not that I really doubted that this would come down in our favor, given my understanding of the science. Right. The judge said in his ruling, there is no evidence other than the unsubstantiated claims of Yuri Melikovets that the test works. And that no evidence is just, those were the words that jumped out of the ruling for me. The judge also wrote that, quote, no matter how damaging or disparaging it may be to the plaintiffs, the truth can never be actionable. But that wasn't the end of it, right? What happened after that ruling came out? So, yeah, after that ruling, there was an appeal. It didn't contest, at least for the grounds of appeal, the fact and law of the decision. It, it went after alleged bias on the part of the trial judge. What evidence did Melikevitz offer in that appeal to argue that the judge was biased against him? The one that they put particular emphasis on, indeed, they claimed that it by itself would be sufficient to establish bias. It wasn't the only thing that was mentioned. It was an incident that occurred uh, during the trial. Um, the judge was becoming ill with a sort of cough and cold, and my lead counsel, Sandra Barton, offered him some cough drops or something. And, and that <laughs> was an example of or reason why the, the judge would be biased in his ruling. I'm, I'm glad to say that the panel of judges that looked at that did not accept that argument. And then it didn't, that didn't work. And then he tried to appeal it again. When, when was this finally all over? Yeah. And the final attempt was to take it to the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. And in April, the end of April this year, Finally, the Supreme Court said, no, we're not, we're not hearing this one. The case was finally over, but, you know, nearly 10 years after the article was published. Yeah, my goodness. Can you tell me if this long, long lawsuit has had a chilling effect on you, on New Scientist who was named in the lawsuit, chilling effect as in, you or the magazine has been reluctant to do this type of reporting again because of the, the expense and the process? Well, on me personally, no. For New Scientist, I think it did. And indeed, Rowan Hooper, who was the news editor I mentioned, whose sample was involved in the stuff we put in, and subsequently the managing editor of New Scientist, testified at trial that exactly all the things you described did make the magazine less likely to pursue these sorts of investigations. I, I left to pursue more of this type of reporting, really, specifically. 
and it had become more difficult to do it at New Scientist. So, yeah, I think it I think it did have a chilling effect. So you wrote about it. I didn't know about any of this. So it's kind of the Streisand effect that Milikovic has found himself the subject of here because I read first about your vindication in the courts and then went back and read everything else. How did it feel to write that final article knowing it, that was it? Well, um, it was something I planned to do, you know, under the terms of the agreement I had with my former employer. I wasn't, I was supposed to not write anything more about it and comment until such time as the case was over. As, as soon as the case was over, then, you know, I was motivated very strongly to come back to this. The thing is, the other reason I did this reporting is it's the public interest. And my frustration is that, you know, nothing had changed. So while on one level it's, well, that's good, you know, great, we have prevailed here, but this is still going on. If there have been any changes to how the test is run, there is no public information on that. I, I want to make this very clear. You can still buy this test from Health Genetic Center. You just said it might be a different test, but you can go on their website. Yuri Melikovitz is still in charge of it, and people are still still buying it. You can't use it in court, is my understanding. But and And it has never been a test that could be used in court. It's sometimes called peace of mind paternity testing, yeah. Why is Health Genetic Center still allowed to operate here in Toronto, given that a judge has ruled that, and I'm going to quote again from the ruling here, fully examined, there is no debate about the validity of the test. The work required to confirm that it was claimed was not done. Uh, I'll answer that, if I may, sort of more about this industry as, as a whole. Please. Genetic testing in general is not regulated in the same way that drugs and medical devices are regulated. There are certain standards, and paternity testing is even less regulated than you know, medical genetic testing. When it comes to paternity testing in, in most countries, certainly in the US, New York State's a little bit different, but across most of the U.S., and my understanding in Canada, is that unless a paternity test is going to be used in court, essentially it's, it's outside of any specific regulation. So, and, and that, to my view, is, is a fundamental problem. Like many of the operators in this space are absolutely reputable companies that uh, if they produce a novel, novel test, they are publishing their validation studies, they're getting those validation studies peer-reviewed, but nothing compels them to do that. In my view, I, you know, I don't want to talk specifically about one company here. Sure. The bigger question to my mind is, like, if we want to make so that it isn't a situation in, in which we're not kind of looking at buyer beware, then it would seem to me reasonable to do a couple of things. One would be to just make it mandatory that labs have to have formal accreditation for proficiency with established bodies that provide this. There are international bodies that do it as well. 
And, and as well, that if you come up with a scientifically novel test, there's something like drug approval for it. Right. And the people who buy these tests seem to me to be in a particularly vulnerable position. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I, I just don't know how they're supposed to know which one to choose, especially if one seems like it might be better or safer for a baby. It's, it's hard, right? I mean, I mean, I have the advantage in trying to work it out that I've trained as a scientist. I've spent many years as a science journalist. I have access to the world's leading experts who I can just email and call, call them and run stuff past them and get their views on it. Most people can't do that. Um, and if you don't have those resources at your disposal, then it's, it's just very hard to know, I think. I've spoken to you know, several individuals who've been caught up in this situation, and what I hear is just the, the desperation at the, the time that it was important to them to have, a, have an answer. And, it, and it's either, you know, there's more than one man who might be the father of this fetus, and I really need to know to work out what to do with my life, or or it's potentially I know who's the father of this child, but they won't accept that without proof, and so I need to provide that proof, and then the answer comes out the way you know can't be true, and. The, the case in Costa Rica that I wrote about in the, the current story, that is my understanding of the situation there, talking to the woman involved. She never had any doubt who the father was. And that, that just must be such a desperate situation to be put in. I mean, this is a time of immense stress anyway. And then to have on the top of that either getting a result which you know can't be true, getting a result that you later find out is wrong. Um, so the couple in Arizona I mentioned, uh, the man who's called Milan Jeknic actually gave evidence in my trial. I mean, he broke down in tears on the witness stand um, talking about being told he was the father of this child, planning his life with his girlfriend, but then finding out that he wasn't. I mean, he described it as like learning that his baby had been switched at the hospital. I mean, these are, are not trivial issues. These, these, this, this is people's lives. That's your Canada Land. If you like the show, you can get it ad-free for five bucks a month by clicking on the show notes. Or you can email my boss, Jesse, at jesse at canadalandshow.com. He reads them all, and he forwards some of them to me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by me, Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.